We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 20 of Watch with Jen. It's been a terrific year so far of thoughtful film discussion on the podcast with remarkable guests, some new, some returning, and there is much more in store for you this year. But after today's episode, the pod is going on a short hiatus for a few weeks. It'll give me some time to recharge before and after I have a small surgery for some internal damage that I did coughing way too hard with COVID and asthma at the start of the pandemic, which reminds me, if you are especially high risk, wear your masks in crowded places and get those boosters, everyone, because this thing has not gone away. I'm living in a state where it is extremely rampant, so be careful. But fear not about the podcast anyway, because although new episodes won't be dropping until likely mid-June, I will still be hard at work researching and recording new installments, and soon you'll hear some of the following conversations. Music supervisor Tiffany Anders on Rock Docs, crime writer Nikki Dolson on Women in Crime Movies, Actor Rob Belushi on 4 by Steven Soderbergh from Out of Sight to Traffic. Podcaster Conrado Falco III on Owen Wilson. Actor Donald Logue on Kitchen Sink Dramas. Film critic Sean Burns on Jack Nicholson. A brand new series with film critic Walter Chaw on Alfred Hitchcock called Hitchcraft. And a brand new spinoff series with podcaster and critic Blake Howard called Midnight Run-Through on the great film by director Martin Brest with Charles Grodin and a certain actor I love named Robert De Niro and much more. Of course, this is pending any last minute changes in availability and topic. Also, more episodes are being planned all the time. So stay tuned to me on social media and or Patreon at Film Intuition for more news. 
one last thing I wanted to be sure to mention is if you like today's conversation on erotic 80s cinema with You Must Remember This podcast host Karina Longworth, don't miss our earlier episodes on Michael Douglas with Sean Burns and James Spader with Kate Hagen. Both were done last year. And in the Spader one, to my horror, I must confess, I recently discovered that I said the name Elias Pateas incorrectly on that episode, but hey, live and learn. So when you listen to that one, you can go ahead and laugh at me. It is totally fine. But speaking of Koteas, you can find a newly released roughly 6,000 word article by yours truly over on the DVD Netflix blog devoted to the actor where I dissected a handful of his great performances, including his turn in the uber erotic David Cronenberg film Crash, co-starring James Spader. But enough from me, just wanted to give you a heads up on the hiatus that is coming just for a couple weeks, but I hope you won't abandon the podcast and listen to any episodes that you missed or rate and review in the time off, or just stay tuned and let me know what you would love to hear or what you're excited for down the road. So thank you very much, everyone. Returning to the podcast, we have a woman who needs no introduction, one whose voice is or should be, especially if you're a cinephile, her own introduction. It's the wonderful Karina Longworth, a film writer I remember reading as far back as her days at Cinematical and The Village Voice, as well as the author of Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom and Howard Hughes' Hollywood, and books on George Lucas, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep, Karina Longworth is the historian and podcaster behind the acclaimed, addictive, and utterly fascinating series, You Must Remember This, and the recent show Love is a Crime for Vanity Fair as well. Visiting today to tell us all about her titillating new season of You Must Remember This that's devoted to erotic cinema of the 80s and 90s, When we both came of age, I am so thrilled to welcome her back for the first time since she stopped by last fall to talk about Dean Martin. Karina, I want to thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how is spring treating you so far? Thanks for having me. I'm doing okay. Um, You know, just trying to make all these podcast episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I love the season so far. I think, I mean, every season I get very excited. They're always fascinating. But I think this season in particular, you completely outdid yourself. The amount of research, scholarship, just the breadth and the scope is so cool. And I want to congratulate you on everything that you've accomplished with it. Thank you so much. That's that's really good to hear because it has not been easy. (laughs) It's nice to hear that it's worthwhile. It's such a good exploration of the erotic 80s. And I'm someone who just wrote about Crash recently for an article. That's the 90s, of course. But I received a humanities scholarship for writing my thesis on sex, lies, and videotape. So I'm passionate about the subject and firmly believe that more smart women should be writing and talking about screen sex. So I love your analytical approach from screen kisses and the use of lighting to purify women's dark, lustful desires, as you put it, to your eye-opening research on some of the decade's biggest erotic films, 
in a year-by-year foray into the topic. I think it's a massive, bold, and intensely worthwhile feat of journalism, and so damn entertaining to boot. Do you remember how you first got the idea for the season? Why you thought the time was right for it? And I think we agree that it is especially vital now, of course, but how you figured out the parameters of how to go about it? Yeah, I don't I don't really remember when I first got the idea, to be honest. I think I had had an idea of like maybe trying to do a coffee table book at some point called Erotic oh, 80s. Sure. Um, but um, basically during the first few months of 2020, as we were sort of adjusting to pandemic life, um, I ended up watching a lot of these films from the 80s and 90s, either re-watching them or watching them for the first time. And um, I... I was interested in why I was gravitating towards movies that for the most part combined like sex and danger. Yeah. Um, And so I I wanted to kind of look into that a little bit. Um, But also I think, you know, I'm not the first person and I'm sure I won't be the last person to say that Hollywood movies today feel more sexless than they have in a long time. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I when I, the memories that I have of this time, especially the late '80s and early '90s, was you know it was tied into my own adolescence and my own sort of sexual coming of age in a way, um, and probably accelerated by how much sex there was in popular culture. Yes, um, and so I I just you know I felt like there's a, just so much to say about all of it, and then that so that's kind of the beginning, and then as I started doing the research, I realized that it's about so much more than that. It's about um, the sexual revolution and the women's movement and the MPAA rating system replacing the production code. Um, and I'm sure as I continue to research into the 90s, I'll figure out more things that it's about. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember coming of age, like when we did any of the first movies that really kind of stood out to you as, wow, um, being <laughs> provocative or shocking that you remember seeing at a young age? I mean, the first piece of information I really ever got about sex came from this British indie movie called Wish You Were Here. Um, I remember that one. Yes. (laughs) And it was just this thing where like my parents, you know, would watch, they'd rent movies from the video store and watch them with me in the room, just thinking that I wasn't paying attention or wasn't understanding anything. Mm -hmm. And I remember really vividly, like my dad left and to like load the dishwasher or something. And my mom kept the movie on and he came back in the room when she's pushing a baby carriage. Okay. Um, for people who don't know, it's a movie about a teenager who has an affair with an older guy and like gets pregnant. Um, and my dad asked my mom, oh, is that baby from the older guy? And my mom said, yes. And I was like, oh, so if a girl has a relationship with an older guy <laughs> and she gets a baby... Um, and so I, you know, very embarrassingly for a few more years thought that you could only get pregnant if you were involved with a man who was older than you. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, you know, you didn't know you were just picking up (laughs) these things from, from TV. I mean, I can, we're going to go there anyway. So I can say that, you know, around this time period for a few years there too, my parents showed me everything and I just watched movies. So I just assumed that all sex was, was like a man and a woman laying on top of each other and, you know, (laughs) and that was it. That's all that entailed. And it wasn't until middle school, you know, where you take the class and you're like, wait, what happened? 
Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. It's a little bit different than what you see on, on TV. So it yeah. isn't the older guy. There's a little more complexity there, but we were just kind of, you know, picking up these things as we, as we watch the movies, basically. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I am constantly riveted by some of the startling revelations that you made. And I think the phrase secret and or forgotten history for it is especially apt because you find out just how popular X-rated movies were when they first arrived in theaters from Midnight Cowboy to I Am Curious Yellow and beyond. Yet you also are doing such a terrific job of tying in contemporaneous articles and reviews as you did particularly this week with the teen films of 1982 episode, which was really fascinating. Do you have any favorite surprises or discoveries that you made along the way that then changed either the way that you thought about something or how you decided you were going to cover it? I think that in a lot of ways, the episode or the season's themes kind of came together for me when I was researching the episode about Richard Gere, which is the Mm -hmm. third of the season. And through that, I was able to sort of understand that. um, Well, first of all, that episode kind of begins with American Gigolo and it's about 1980. And I had bought all of these issues of Playboy from 1980. I like, you know, just bought like the whole lot of them from 1980 on eBay. Mm-hmm. And I was able to really see through reading all 12 issues of Playboy from 1980 that at that time, Playboy was launching a coordinated, like defensive campaign against feminism um, uh-huh. and specifically against the sort of branch of feminism, which was very mainstream at the time that wanted to remove all pornography from public space. And Playboy was defined as pornography. Movies that included anything like realistic sex were defined as pornography by these feminists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to sort of, you know, see how Playboy was positioning this argument as a free speech argument um, and how they were sort of like masterfully using their rhetoric <laughs> against the feminists Um, But then I was also able to understand how the mainstream media was kind of taking up these things in um, less direct ways and um, sort of more subtly fighting the same fight that Playboy was fighting, but doing it in a way where they, you know, it wasn't talking about feminist rhetoric and it wasn't talking about free speech rhetoric. It was talking about like, you know, well, we know women are liberated now because they all want (laughs) to have sex with Richard Gere. Um, Uh So we like progress is accomplished. No more work. It needs to be done. Um, yeah. Who needs equal pay? Now we have hunks. Um, <laughs> so it's just for me, it's like, it, it's a little bit conspiracy theory, but when you do the kind of work that I do, where you just try to read as much as you can about a moment in time, you mm-hmm. do start making these connections and you see how these same impulses manifest in different ways. Yeah. And you really take a look at the consumerist angle, which I find really fascinating. Like the Richard Gere episode in particular was stellar because you talk about, I mean, the very first image, you know, him in his sports car and you have the Armani. And also, I I can't remember if it was this film in particular, or maybe when you were just saying the uh, conclusions that you made or that were coming about a lot of these movies with yuppies and how sex went hand in hand with upward um, mobility and being wealthy and just how we were being fed kind of a commercial 
of, you know, you're sexy if you have money or you're sexy if this is this. And yeah, I think it's really fascinating the way that you're able to weave all these different facets together. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how unique it is to the 80s or 90s because I do think, you know, it's it's a part of a movie like A Place in the Sun as well. Oh, that's but, true. I mean, like there, certainly there was a lot of movies in this time period that I'm talking about where sexual freedom and economic freedom were tied very closely together um, mm-hmm. and desirability and wealth were tied very close together. And so I just think that stuff is so interesting and and in a way is... I mean, these movies are obviously very specific to the 80s, but in a way, those themes are timeless. They have to do with with human desire and how that changes over time. Yes, absolutely. Well, I always listen to your show with a pen and paper because you reference so many excellent movies, including ones I either haven't seen in years or are completely new to me. And I feel like your podcast works as kind of a film club. So it's been great to see you influence the weekly conversation on Twitter as people are checking out movies like 10, which I haven't seen in years and really want to again now, uh, or Body Heat, etc., And today you've selected three films that figure prominently in your season for us to take a closer look at. Paul Schrader's American Gigolo, which we had just mentioned, followed by two from director Adrian Lyne in the form of Nine and a Half Weeks and Fatal Attraction. We'll go deeper into the films here one by one. So I'd recommend anyone listening who hasn't seen them to proceed with caution as there will be spoilers ahead because that's where the good stuff is. I usually employ long, detailed intros to each film, but because Karina is the expert on this trio, I'm opting to keep it brief because I love her research and insights on these movies in particular. Our first film is one that she mentions ushered in the 1980s in terms of not only its sexual frankness, including male frontal nudity, but also its gay panic, homoeroticism, and or fascination built into the narrative by writer-director Paul Schrader, as well as its rampant consumerism from the very first frame of American Gigolo. The film starred Days of Heaven lead Richard Gere as Julian Kay a high-class male escort in Los Angeles who caters to his rich idol and considerably older clientele who finds himself getting involved in a new relationship with Lauren Hutton. At the very same time, he becomes suspect number one in a murder case. Very stylish and daring, yet one that you might appreciate the complexities of more on a rewatch. Karina, what is your take on this film, which you dissected so memorably in that Richard Gere episode? Yeah, I kind of feel like if you're going to watch only one movie to decide whether or not you want to listen to this podcast season or kind of take this whole journey, this is the one to start with. Um, yeah. Because it, it sets the tone in so many ways stylistically and and just in terms of these themes that we've already been talking about, about um, desirability and consumerism and and how how sexiness and being able to show off wealth kind of go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's really fascinating to read about Paul Schrader and how he sort of treated a lot of his films as coded autobiography. Yes. Um, and so he saw himself as a kind of, of gigolo, um, as a hustler in Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, to sell himself in Hollywood. And, and he was also experiencing some of the stuff I talk about in terms of feeling the the influence in a positive way of 
gay culture on yes. his straight sex life, straight social life, um, but also feeling a lot of anxiety about that influence. And so all of that stuff is in the movie, you know? I mean, I think that um, as the production code gave way to the rating system, um, this was an R-rated movie from 1980. And so it it is able to be much more direct in certain ways, you know? Um, we, I, we do see Richard Gere's flaccid penis. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it it makes it pretty clear what his profession is and in a way that mm-hmm. it would have been much more coded 12, 15 years earlier. But at the same time, you know, not everything had changed. And so I think like the queer aspect of the story um, is maybe different than it would have been in a movie made today. And and I'm definitely interested to see, I know that they're doing a, a TV remake of, yeah. of American Gigolo as a, as a modern day set series. And so I'm, I'm really interested to see how these ideas kind of are, you know, morphed into a 2022 sensibility. Yeah, it is a film I remember seeing like on cable when I was younger. The only sequence that I fully remembered was the ending for whatever reason. I think it just stood out to me. But it was around the fall of 2019. I think it was on the Criterion channel again. And that's when I um, saw it most recently. And I think, yeah, I think this time around, especially watching it um, in anticipation of this, I was very taken in by the gay panic that is woven throughout the film and the subtext and the way that um, different lines of dialogue play throughout, you know, the line, like women don't come here. Well, do men come here? Is it just women? Like what is going on? Or later with Bill Duke in the the gay club, the line about like, "Ah, are you coming home or something like that? Or have you come home? Like there are some really interesting Um, line choices and line readings. And I know you mentioned that John Travolta was up for the role and was going to do it and then got cold feet. Did you want to talk more about that as well? Sure. Yeah. The movie was ready to go with John Travolta playing the lead role. And then I think it was about six weeks before they were actually going to start shooting. um, He dropped out and the official reason given for him dropping out was that his mother was sick. um, And then the the trade magazines were speculating that it probably also had something to do with this movie he was in with Lily Tomlin called Moment by Moment. Um, oh, and yeah. he sort of played a, a hustler type character who gets involved with an older rich woman. And that movie was a huge flop. I actually mm-hmm. really like it, <laughs> but it's <laughs> considered like a notorious flop. And, um, you know, the speculation in places like Variety was that he didn't want to do American Gigolo because it seemed too similar to this movie he was just in that was this big flop. But Schrader speculated, um, you know, and this comes from an interview he gave really recently, like within the past two years or so, mm-hmm. um, that he felt like the character of Julian Kay um, was kind of too queer coded. And that made Travolta feel uncomfortable because of Travolta's own sexuality. Um, And so in that interview, Schrader is sort of outing John Travolta. Obviously, there um, have been rumors about Travolta as far back as then, um, but Travolta himself has never come out. So it's sort of an ethical gray Mm -hmm. area. Um, Yeah, we're just saying Schrader there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, absolutely. And I had read that this was not the first time that Travolta had backed out and Richard Gere had filled in, I guess, Days of Heaven, something similar. And then um, 
is it officer and a gentleman I read as well. I also heard that like Chevy Chase was one of the people <laughs> considered for American Gigolo. It's, it seems impossible. Oh, I when didn't you hear watch. that one. <laughs> yeah, it seems impossible when you think about this movie to think of anyone other than Richard Gere because he's so phenomenal. I mean, just he's seducing everything and everyone in sight. The way he walks, he kind of has this, like, are there trampolines in his shoes? I'm not sure exactly what he's doing. He's kind of like prancing um, like a panther or stalking his prey. He's especially that scene where he um, goes into the, is it the, I forget which hotel that he he goes Beverly in. Hotel, Beverly Hills Hotel, yeah. Beverly Hills Hotel. And he's just kind of like entering and all the women are watching and Richard Gere is just completely on fire in that film. And yeah, just, he really seems to come into his own as a star yeah. and, and assume his own persona in a way where you can't really compare him to anyone else. You know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that, as you said, like he was sort of considered a replacement Travolta for a while. Um, also, when he one of his most memorable roles before this was in Looking for Mr. Goodbar and yeah. um, a lot of. Um, in looking for Mr. Goodbar, a lot of people compared him to Robert De Niro. Um, yeah, you. I remember that in the, the podcast. The, some of the uh, criticisms were horrible, like a better looking De Niro or less, um, you know, yeah. less ugly or some of the quotes <laughs> that you had. It was like, oh, no, because I mean, film critics were really on <laughs> when it came to talking about how performers looked. And, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I. I don't want to like say that it was entirely a bad thing because I think in some ways it was more honest than criticism can be now. I mean, mm-hmm. like now, if you do say that somebody is attractive, you'll be attacked for being too horny. That's true. Um, so, <laughs> you know, maybe we can find a middle ground where, where we're not necessarily making fun of people, but yeah. we are being <laughs> honest about like how, because what performers look like is such a big part of, of what they bring to a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, and especially in this era, it is so important that he looks a certain way and he's able to present himself as such. Um, I think the whole cast is really good. Um, what is your take on the love scenes? That's one thing that uh, I almost think, you know, and everyone talks about this movie being so um, erotic. I never thought that Paul Schrader was maybe the best at directing sex scenes, but maybe that is supposed to be the point. These aren't supposed to be super hot. They are kind of coolly clinical. Like there's the line later where she said um, that I think she wanted to kiss him because when they have sex, then he's in work mode or something like that. And I think that might be part of it. They are, they kind of hold you at an arm's length little bit but yeah I don't know that's my one thing with Paul Schrader is the guy needs to work on his sex scenes there I'll say that as a critic yeah <laughs> I think that I think Comfort of Strangers I think that movie has some sex oh that's right yeah people as well um but I would agree that this film is um it's a little clinical in terms mm-hmm. of, of the sex scenes and it it does seem like he's performing a routine yeah. um but I think that like what is erotic is just him. Um, exactly. You know, like he is, he is an advertisement for his own sexuality in a way yes. <laughs> that is more exciting than the sex he can deliver. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even when he's out for lunch or when he's meeting Bill Duke and he's just kind of eyeing these women at a nearby table. Like there are there's so much heat just in those, you know, few little gazes that he's throwing. It's basically a little bit of advertising that uh, the gear character is doing throughout. And there's so many scenes like that through the movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a fun one for sure. Um, is it one that you remembered watching back in the nineties or was this kind of newer to you? Honestly, I can't remember the first time I saw it. I think mm-hmm. it was probably something where, um, my first exposure to it was buying the soundtrack on vinyl because it has like the great blonde good soundtrack, then, you know, a few other songs. And so I, I actually, like I used to, um, I used to buy a lot of soundtracks on vinyl because it was sort of a, it felt like, um, getting a lot for your money, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it was like almost buying a mixtape. And so, um, I really wore out that soundtrack throughout my twenties. Um, and so I was definitely more familiar with that than I was with the movie for a long time. Um, but I went through, I, I've kind of gone through a couple different phases of, of being, um, like a Paul Schrader completest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, and every time I kind of like move forward on that and, and like watch another film, I kind of come back to American Gigolo because gotcha. um, it, for me, it's, it's the best. Um, and I, I've actually like, since I like started doing this season, I've been engaging in some lively conversations with people about ranking Paul Schrader movies. Uh-huh. Interesting. My favorite is definitely Light Sleeper, which mm-hmm. has another great soundtrack. I mean, I enjoy some other ones as well. I'm going to be doing an episode of the podcast with Megan Abbott since she's a fellow like sleeper and Paul Schrader fan. So we're going to do a whole episode on Paul Schrader. But this soundtrack for American Gigolo is also one that we had in the house. My dad had it on cassette. So I remember when I found that kind of teasing him about it until I listened to it and then was like, wow, this is such a good soundtrack and played it again and again. Absolutely. The 80s and 90s had such good soundtracks, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, next up, we have our first of two films from director Adrian Lyne, released in 1986, Nine and a Half Weeks, based on a 1978 memoir from Austrian-American author Ingeborg Day, stars Kim Basinger as a Soho art gallery employee who falls under the spell of the dominant Wall Street arbitrager, played by Mickey Rourke, who charms, seduces, and then breaks down the young woman's walls and soon begins to control and direct every aspect of her life, not only sexually, but right down to the food she eats that he serves her and more. A disturbing and strange film that lives and dies by the heat and beauty of its two magnetic leads, this movie shows us the darker side of dating and desire, which is a specialty of Adrian Lyons. So talk to me about Nine and a Half Weeks. For me, um, and I now I feel like I probably should have not picked two Adrian Lyne movies because we're just going to exhaustively talk about him. But <laughs> this is, um, I'm a big fan of his work. Um, and for me, this is the most fascinating of his films. Um, gotcha. Also the most, I think, um, controversial, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of, um, I think that just the title alone has almost become um, like a punchline of, you know, soft core of evocative a yeah. of, of kind of, of idea of sleaze. And, you know, I just think the movie itself is better than that. Um, 
certainly troubling in some ways. Um, and I imagine it would be triggering for some people. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I just think that it's um, it's not the book. It, you know, it, it departs from the book in some significant ways. And one of the reasons for that, as I talk about in the episode that's going to come out about this, um, has to do with the couple who wrote it and um, kind of pushed for the adaptation, the film adaptation to happen. And that was Zalman King, who would later go on to create the series Red Shoe Diaries, and mm-hmm. his wife, Patricia Knopp. And when they read the memoir, Nine and a Half Weeks, um, you know, that is a story in which this woman, you know, really kind of becomes the man's sex slave, and it, it really destroys her. Um, they wanted to sort of take a more metaphorical approach to an SM style relationship. Mm-hmm. And and, um, you know, kind of deal with it in a way where you could depict a woman um, engaging in what begins as a consensual relationship and throughout it, her boundaries are tested. But in yes. the end, she is able to like firmly say no and walk away when mm-hmm. her boundaries have been crossed. Um, and so, it, you know, I think that it's open for debate as to whether or not um, that's that was the right decision to make in terms mm-hmm. of adaptation. But for me, I find it to be uh, powerful in a different way than the book is, but still really powerful. I have never read the book. It was interesting. I read um, today. I found on my bookshelf, one of those people has way too many film books. And then I forget which ones I have, but I found um, the erotic thriller and contemporary cinema by Linda Ruth Williams. And when I was going through and looking up um, nine and a half weeks, she brought up something interesting. I mean, she was talking about uh, line and what he does with imagery and how at the beginning of the movie, Basinger's character kind of walks towards us or towards the camera. And then at the end, she's walking away. And um, so she was bringing up the fact that, you know, how basically um, what line is doing with the camera and being like we are in her frame of mind through the film, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. I think line is such a stylish filmmaker. His movies are so glossy. There are elements, you know, that are like the music video. He gets kind of credited with, you know, flash dance. And so there is this sort of gloss or this music video quality about that. They're like the leave your hat on scene in this movie. It's super sexy, but, you know, that's its own little thing. But I think watching this movie, it is like you're in a dream state and you can kind of see how she is getting seduced by the Mickey Roar character because we're kind of right along with her and in her frame of mind, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think I totally agree. I think that it stays really firmly wedded to her subjectivity. Yeah. Um, And I think that it, that's a decision that I think is, you know, makes for very exciting cinema. It also makes it so that it doesn't feel like, like the male filmmaker is judging this female character. True. Uh, It doesn't, it doesn't feel like, he's telling us how to feel about what she's going through. Mm-hmm. It just feels like he's communicating what she is feeling. Um, and in a way where even, you know, the character can't always make sense of it. Um, and yeah. so I find it, I find it really beautiful, you know, and also vulgar and stupid in some <laughs> ways. And, you know, but there's just so many things about it where I feel like it is using sit like the, like the language of cinema to interrogate the tropes of romantic cinema. Um, for instance, there's this montage sets the Brian Ferry song Slave for Love. 
Yes. Um, and what that montage depicts is basically like Kim Basinger's character continually trying to set boundaries and Mickey Rourke continually like pushing past these boundaries she's trying to set. Mm-hmm. And it ends with um, the two of them standing in the rain and he has an umbrella and she doesn't and he won't let her come under his umbrella. And then it cuts to her sick in bed and him feeding her soup. And it's like, it's basically Phantom Thread 30 years before Phantom Thread. <laughs> yes. No, it is really but interesting. But it's in this montage that's yeah. edited together like it's a rom-com, you know, it, it's like, <laughs> and so it's it's just really, I find it really interesting the way that um, line does, and it's it it fits in with what you were saying in terms of you're, you're right there with her as she's being seduced. He uses the cinematic um, techniques to, lure you in and, you know, almost have you, put you in a place where you lose your ability to be critical. And yeah. then you can catch yourself and be like, wait a minute, like something very strange is happening here. Yes. That's a really good point. Watching it. Uh, this was only the second time I had seen the movie. I saw it for the first time a few years ago. I think when I was going to do a Mickey Rourke episode, I don't even think we talked about it. It was just like, how can you not watch nine and a half weeks just to have that sort of background. But when I watched it this time, knowing what was going to happen, it's amazing how, I mean, there were red flags the first time around right away, but how he is kind of playing with her right away on the first date. Like he is feeding her um, food or trying to, Uh, you know, she has her own glass of wine, but he wants to have her drink out of his glass. Like some of the things that he is doing, he's almost like taking these little baby steps or conditioning her under the guise of romance. And we're Mm -hmm. right there with her, you know, like, oh, we're in a restaurant. And this is, you know, what we've seen in movies over time is try my entree off of my fork kind of thing. But then (laughs) it takes on this sort of like darker energy, because we know where it's going to lead. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting film. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of their chemistry? I think they're really great together. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think that this is Kim Basinger's best performance. I think she's really fantastic in it. And, she is. you know, I mean, she, the, I talk about this more in the episode and so I don't want to like get too deep into it, oh, but sure. I mean, it was, it was definitely um, a bad experience for her on set. Um, I think she was happy with the finished product, um, but um, the methods to sort of get her to react in a real way um, went pretty far. And so that's, you know, again, like another thing about the movie to, you know, you can feel multiple ways about all at once. Um, But I am not somebody who, you know, in other movies finds Mickey Rourke attractive and I find him very attractive in this. And I think that's mm-hmm. very important to the movie because it, you can't, it wouldn't work if no. this guy is like taking her to a houseboat and putting on strange fruit and you didn't find him sexy. <laughs> like, I know, it's like why strange very, fruit? very strange things. You know, <laughs> yeah. you have to understand that she is attracted to him even as mm-hmm. he's doing these very red flaggy things. Yeah, absolutely. I made that joke kind of on Twitter. Like she ignores 9,000 and a half red flags because he looks like Mickey Rourke did in in that year, basically. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And um, I think I read that the 
the audition was pretty traumatic for Kim. And so I am eager to hear the episode and learn more about it because I don't know a whole lot about the backstory. And it sounds like um, that we're going to learn quite a bit. So I'm looking forward to that. But lastly, we also have one of the biggest hits of 1987 and one of the most iconic erotic thrillers of the decade in Fatal Attraction, written by James Dearden, based on his short film, Diversion. Director Adrian Lyne's film stars Michael Douglas as a married Manhattan lawyer who embarks on a whirlwind impulsive affair with a book editor played by Glenn Close. Not wanting to simply end their weekend romp when Douglas needs to return home to his daughter and wife, Ann Archer, he gets more than he bargained for with Close, who turns into a violent, possessive stalker. Controversial for many reasons, not the least, of course, are the sexual politics of the film's crazy, single, childless career woman. But still, it's very well made and well acted. So let's dive into Fatal Attraction. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, you know, Fatal Attraction is, um, it is probably the most famous movie that I talked about <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the 80s season. Um, you know, later on, we'll have Basic Instinct and Showgirls. But, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> for now, it's Fatal Attraction is kind of like the big blockbuster to discuss of the 80s. Um, and it really, um, it was, you know, not the highest grossing movie of 1987. You know, depending on which chart you look at, that was either Three Men and a Baby or Beverly Hills Cop 2. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was certainly the most discussed. And um, it started an extremely wide ranging cultural conversation. Um, and as I was going through you know, all the magazine and newspaper clippings about this film. Um, One thing that was surprising is that I, you know, I think that sometimes we have a tendency to be like, well, Me Too changed everything and nobody ever talked about any of this stuff five years ago. (laughs) And, you know, nobody, you know, was able to acknowledge, you know, toxic masculinity. And, you know, the conversation about fatal attraction in 1987 was extremely diverse. There were people... There were people who were like, Glenn Close is a witch and like <laughs> the witch and and Michael Douglas just did what, you know, any married man would do. And married men used to be able to have affairs and now everything's too politically correct. And mm-hmm. then there were a lot of people who were saying, I identify with the Glenn Close character. Mm-hmm. And then there were, you know, people in between and, and who had, uh, you know, just much more diverse opinions about it. And there was not, there was not a correct way to interpret the movie. No. And in fact, the like the movie benefited from people having these diverse opinions about it and debating it constantly. And you know, I think the filmmakers in some ways egged on certain parts of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, there are some famous quotes from both Douglas and Line that seem pretty terrible, pretty anti-feminist. Yeah. Um but I also, you know, it's hard to say, you know, with this, with hindsight, you know, to what extent they were kind of like fanning the flames mm-hmm. or if they really believed that. I mean, certainly Line um, said so much about the movie. He was doing so much press. And sometimes he'd talk about, you know, um, having empathy for the Glenn Close character. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he'd talk about how, um, you know, very famously they shot a different ending. Yes. Um, in which, um, 
uh, I don't, I mean, spoiler alert, I guess we already just, oh yeah, it's fine. And in the original ending, um, Glenn Close kills herself and for, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of a brief moment, um, Michael Douglas is arrested for the crime because his fingerprints are on the knife because a couple scenes earlier, he tried to kill her with that knife, sort of couldn't do it. Um, but then like the day is saved because Ann Archer finds this cassette tape (laughs) recorded. Um, and so that, that version was the version that Adrian line wanted that everybody was happy with in terms of the screenwriter and the, uh, Mm -hmm. studio executive, uh, Sherry Lansing. And then the test screenings of that version, um, just got middling scores and the, the executives and the producers, after screening the movie six, seven times, they started to realize that the line when Ann Archer tells Glenn Close, if you come near my family again, I will kill you. That mm-hmm. line was getting a huge round of applause. Yep. And so they kind of put two and two together and were like, does the audience want to see one woman kill the other? Yeah. Um, and you know, as it turned out, certainly like a large segment of the audience did want that. That's, that's what they reshot. That's how the movie ends now. And, you know, I, (laughs) it's really (laughs) hard to say what the fatal attraction experience would have been like if they hadn't done that. Um, I think that the current ending feels really tacked on. It feels like it comes from a different movie. It feels yes. It feels like a horror movie all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. she turns into this supernatural creature who like yes. can't be killed until like <laughs> like the other woman like you know puts her She's down. Jason basically at the end of the yeah. movie, yeah, popping out of a <laughs> out of the water yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, you're not really sure what what you're seeing for sure. And it's it's definitely interesting to know that the filmmakers, you know. Um, felt like they were cornered into that ending by the audience, which is for them to say that is a cop-out. I mean, you know, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't have to play into the audience's worst instincts, um, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it ends up being this hit movie that in a really significant way, nobody wants to take credit for that's true. Yeah, it's fan service circa 1987, essentially. Um, it's like extremely well made. The acting is great. But I do agree with you. I feel like the end is just a completely different thing. There are some flashes of camp, like all of a sudden, um, it turns into whatever happened to baby Jane or whatever, <laughs> a little bit, you know, the bunny scene, of course, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit with the roller coaster. I mean, one thing that you made a really good point when you were talking about night and a half weeks of how Adrian line doesn't judge our female character. Cause we're kind of in her frame of mind and how that's a really fascinating way to approach that film. It feels like this one is maybe, you know, they are kind of leading us to think certain things. We understand that she is a mentally ill woman. Of course you get that. But, you know, they are kind of going for the worst. There are these horror moments of like, you know, the jump scare there at the end. And then some flashes of that earlier on. I think uh, Glenn Close, it was kind of, you know, I give her credit for taking this role on. She is phenomenal in it. Um, You know, she's playing kind of like a wicked witch, essentially. There is, of course, a lot of um, feminist critique about the film as far as, you know, career woman being undone by the married woman. There was a lot of 
ink spilled. I remember when I was doing some research on the film and the reactions to it of having the married woman sort of, you know, be the one to kill her. And also um, did affairs go down because of this thing? I mean, it was really a hot button issue. This was also a punchline in Sleepless in Seattle, which is the first time I ever heard the phrase fatal attraction as a girl was the line from uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. I don't remember that line. Oh, wow. The, um, he is trying to get, uh, the kid is trying to get Tom Hanks to go meet Annie. (laughs) And he's like, you know, you want me to go to New York and she could be a real sicko. And like, didn't you see fatal attraction? You wouldn't let me. And he (laughs) said, well, I did, you know, it scared the shit out of every man in America. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Sleepless in Seattle is where I first heard about uh, fatal attraction so I knew um, as a girl, like, ooh, this movie was going to be scary. And it really was when I first saw it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that uh, when, every time I watch it, I kind of go back and forth, you know, mm-hmm. um, in terms of how I feel about what the movie is trying to communicate um, mm-hmm. in terms of men and women. And, yeah. you know, I, I do think like there is an aspect of it where it is critiquing the Michael Douglas character. Um, that scene where she tells him in the subway station that she's pregnant, you know, it would not have been written that way if you didn't want him to think he's being, if you, if you weren't supposed to think he's being an asshole. Yes. Um, And so I do think that even if ultimately the movie is like kind of on his side and his wife's side and anti the single baby hungry woman, um, (laughs) I do think it is such a valuable time capsule of a certain way of a certain way that men thought about women and were scared of women at that time. I agree with you. And when I talked about this film, actually last fall, I did an episode with Sean Burns and we were talking about, you know, he has this gorgeous wife at home, a very happy home. And like, what is it that drives him over the edge kind of, so you are judging the Michael Douglas character right away. Like, uh oh, they get home from the party and he wants to sleep with his wife, but he has to take a dog, the dog for a walk. And then when he comes back, you know, the little kid is in bed with the mom and she says some line like, well, just for tonight. So it's one night he couldn't get laid and that (laughs) maybe sent him right over the edge. Although it does make you question, was this really his first affair? Because he's pretty okay with falling right into it. So it is making you question Douglas. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one funny like quote from Adrian line that I read was that he was sort of joking in an interview about how all his male friends are like, well, you ruined adultery for us. Like (laughs) we can't, we can't go back to our old ways now. Um, and I, you know, I do think there is this sense in the film of like, you know, the modern man has been so emasculated and all this guy wanted was just one weekend where he could (laughs) be a man in the old fashioned way. Um, And then, you know, the movie is kind of split between understanding that impulse and being like, well, you, you had your fun and now you have to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we did choose um, two with Adrian line and I know you're going to probably talk about indecent proposal. I would guess maybe in the nineties or some other ones. Um, Do you have any thoughts on any of the other line films that you want to share? I really like Indecent Proposal too. I mean, I, I do think too. Is, yeah. is actually probably more straightforwardly about toxic masculinity and about the male ego. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that is also one that would, inspired some pretty interesting debate and was a huge blockbuster. I oh, think yeah. it was the number three highest grossing movie of its year. Um, and so the, I'm definitely excited to talk about that. And I'm also going to talk about a film which I actually haven't watched yet, um, but it's his version of Lolita. Oh, yes. I saw it, but it's been so long. I need to revisit it for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. yeah. Looking yeah, forward to you tackling that. Yeah. That's <laughs> all coming up in Erotic 90s. And then, of course, um, there, next week's episode, I don't know when this is coming out, but we have an upcoming episode that deals with Flashdance as well. Ooh, I'm excited about that. Well, obviously, these were the three that we chose that we had time for today. But you're citing so many throughout the season on the podcast. Are there any films, whether you love them or not, that you think are especially good to check out for those who enjoy the topic and would like to explore more? Yeah, I th- there's a couple of, of films that I think are maybe lesser remembered um, that I'm excited uh, for people to get into. One is called No Way Out. With oh, I love that film. Young. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be an episode dealing with that in part. And then, um, you know, the the last episode of Erotic 80s is going to deal with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, but as part of that conversation, I'm going to talk about this movie called Bad Influence. Um, Ooh, during- I love Peter that film. So good. Yeah, which also is in its way about Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It really is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Spader with his home cameras, essentially, and getting in trouble. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited for that. (laughs) Well, I'm loving the season, as I um, mentioned. And I really want to congratulate you. Also, this morning's episode that I listened to, um, I say this morning because that's when I listened, on 1982, I thought um, the way that you led in with the Kavanaugh uh, testimony and tying it in with Porky's, I thought was was extremely apt. And I think it's just really good the way that you're able to tie in modern, um, you know, culture and news, but then also bring us back to how these films were being sold to audiences, um, being rated by the MPAA, and going over with critics and um, viewers at home. So I think it's very valuable. Thank you so much. It's really good to hear. You know, I mean, this episode, you know, sadly is more topical than it would have been had we not heard about how endangered Roe versus Wade is this week. Um, yes. So um, it just so happens that the one episode in which I talk about two films that have abortion scenes um, came out the same week. So unfortunate, mm-hmm. but also it it does show, you know, some, some themes are, uh, always in the news always topical yes and I also thought that the Bo Derek episode was outstanding I actually was completely unfamiliar with her backstory or John Derek so that was all completely new to me uh very alarming very eye-opening and yes I'm just I'm finding the history that you're getting into just so rich and every episode I'm making a list 10 is a film I remember really liking when I saw it, but it's been so long and I can't wait to revisit it now. Yeah, that was a film I saw a lot as a kid because my dad was a big Dudley Moore fan. I love Dudley. As a kid, I was like, you know, not into it. (laughs) (laughs) when When I realized the extent to which Bo Derek was this sort of instant sex star because of it, 
Um, I wanted to revisit it. And then as soon as I watched it, I knew I had to do this episode about it and her. Yes. So are there going to be 10 episodes for the 80s? Or what are, what are you thinking with the amount of episodes? Erotic 80s is 12 episodes. Okay. Um, the first two are sort of, you know, almost prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, yeah, basically from here on out, it's pretty much one episode per year. Okay. Um, with the exception of there's an episode after Fatal Attraction, which is for 1987. I'm doing an episode that's sort of about um, a couple of stars and a couple of films that span 1987 and, and 1988. Okay. Sounds good because this was the heyday. When do you think erotic thrillers stopped getting made? Do you think there was a reason that the nail was put into the coffin, perhaps? You know, I'm sure I will have more ideas yes. about it as I <laughs> the 90s. I mean, I I know that the season is going to end with um, Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh, I cannot wait for that. Well, Karina, I want to thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise. Um, I learned so much and this was a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.